0: You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Budd, only on 640 Toronto.
1: And welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me Yona. I'm in the studio with Loretta, Sophia, and Corey. It must be a, very cozy in and all stuck away in the corners. Actually, it's a big studio, so there's lots of room for everybody. 416-870-6400, if you want to join us, that's how you do that. You Give us a call, and if you're outside of the direct area, 416 888 225 We want to hear from you because this is a show that we share together, you and us and the whole group and the thousands and tens of thousands of people that are listening. I'm really pleased that we can all be here and get on this bus on the Road to Recovery together so keep your arms in and keep your seatbelt on and if you're drinking just be careful you don't spell to the next person just kidding uh but lots to do tonight lots of stuff to talk about not all of it's going to be so fun and easy but stuff that we need to talk about and it's uh, you know a chance for us to share a chance for us to help and heal together literally together not like uh trudeau's together i'm in this with you you know i got your back Yeah, really hasn't been to my house once Hasn't come to shovel my driveway or bring me food because I can't go out because I'm locked in or or shut in or isolated. Nope, hasn't been here once. So I don't think he's in it with me. Anyway, listen, let's start this off a little on the light side for the first segment of the show. And uh, I want to ask you a question. You know, in the parking, I'll tell you you why I'm suggesting this as a topic. I was in the parking lot uh, a couple of days ago in a shopping center, and I saw a guy uh, back into another car. So um, I made the decision, good, bad, or indifferent, not to do anything other than to take down the license number and uh, wrote that paper, wrote it on a piece of paper. And when he left, I put it in the windshield of the person uh, whose car he hit and said, "You know, this is." I didn't give them my name. I didn't want to get involved, but this is what I saw. And then I started to think about, you know, why wouldn't the guy just do the right thing and say, hey, listen, hit your car, I'm really sorry, here's my name and phone number, uh, write down my insurance information, put it on the windshield, and do the right thing. And then I started thinking about what kind of notes go on people's windshields for very di- various reasons. So how do you communicate when you're angry or displeased? Do you turn on your rage dial up a notch or so, or do you kill the problem with politeness? So if you're annoyed with someone's driving abilities or lack thereof, you choose that classical honking and swearing, or you smile and nod at the idiot. I usually blow a kiss. When reckless, uh, well, reckless drivers and parking violators, they make you want to, you know, key their cars and smash their windows. Ever feel like that? Key their cars, smash their windows, Four one six eight seven zero sixty four hundred. Ever been that pissed off at a driver that you want to do damage? Anyway, let me read you. Uh, I, I selected 10 letters or notes that people have left in other people's windows for various reasons, and um, I hope you find it as uh, light and relaxing as I do or did when I first saw it, and uh, then we can lead into the more gut-wrenching stuff for the rest of the show. So here's one. Uh, I saw kids steal your U.S. flag. I know you are the only white guy in the area. We aren't all the same. Buy a new flag with this, your neighbor. And there was a $20 bill and a note attached to this guy's window. Interesting, right? Um, <laughs> here's another one. Uh, excuse my language. You park like an asshole. Please don't reproduce. And they left a condom attached to the, uh, to the note and, uh, and a smiley face. Like, I don't know. Have you ever had anybody leave anything on your window? I, I mean, I, I, have only had like accident type stuff where someone's backed into me kind of like what I did in the parking lot, but I'd love to hear from you. 416-870-6400. Um, want to know if anything ever happened to you in a parking lot? And did they leave a note? Were they nice enough to leave a note? Because it's the right thing to do, right? You know, you're not going to sit around because you don't know where they are. And you know, I'm sure, like me and you know, the rest of the world, everyone's in a hurry. So you're not going to like sit around and wait for them to show up. I'm sure, but leaving a note would be appropriate. So here's somebody who went above and beyond. This is a printed note. Of course, I'm looking at the graphic. You can't see it, uh, but it's a printed card. Um, in you know, obviously produced on a computer of some sort. Uh, and, and, the, and the, it's the uh, it says this that's quite a parking job uh, with the picture of a fox I guess some kind of animal. I assume you did it blindfolded while cra- well a it's oh, a ferret while a crazed ferret clawed at your privates. So it's an outlined black uh, ink picture of a ferret and they, they actually went to the trouble of printing this so I assume that these are the type of people that must do this more than once uh, to go out of their way to actually print something. Uh, to put in people's windows when they don't think they're parking appropriately. Here's one: <clears throat> when you park like a tool, you make people mad. When you make people mad, they write you notes. When they write you notes, they're wasting their time. When they when they waste their time, they get more mad. Or is it maddened? Or, mad, or is it madder? This is hand, a handwritten note. Now they're uh, redoubling. Now they re, now they're doubting their grammar. Don't make people doubt their grammar. Don't park like a tool. Uh, Not so funny. Now that I read it the second time. Anyway, sorry to waste your time for a second there. Anyway, here's one that I really like. These people went out of their way to make potato head dolls, four of them, all with feet and eyes and ears and forms of hands, um, thumbs up, thumbs down, uh, all kinds of like, anyway, they went to a lot of trouble to make these four potato head dolls. And it says, "Are you ang- uh, you've you angered the potato clan with your parking choices. If you park in their space again, they will bring out their produce army. Uh, 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 uh. So it's not a funny note, but holy mackerel. Someone parks and you take the time? Come on, man, seriously. Take the time to make potato head dolls to prove a point? Like, just get past it. Like, so the guy didn't park nicely and just, you know, you can leave a note. I've done it often. Hey, do me a favor next time. Leave space for both of us to park. Have a nice day, right? Uh, Here's one that I have to watch the language, so I'll I'll, I'll blank it in. Uh, I hope you don't F like you park because you'll never get in. Eh, Printed. This is a printed card. This is something printed on a computer. Somebody went out of their way and actually produced these things. Oh, here's another one that I, I thought was kind of interesting. Um, and again, missing the graphic, I guess it's not really great for radio, but I really wanted to start talking about something light about uh, as it relates to notes and how we communicate with one another. And are we positive or negative? Are we, you know, lashing out or, you know, are we do something you know, positive like saying, hey, sorry that you parked like this. If there's anything I can do to help you park better next time. But either way, you know, somebody makes mistakes. I, I parked poorly the other day. I got to be honest. I parked poorly the other day and I came out and knew it. No one said anything to me. I just couldn't see the lines because of the snow. So I figured I was in the, you know, I was in the square and they in the space I'm allowed. And um, yeah, I realized I wasn't really Probably Nobody bothered me about it, but you know, I, I, I'll go out of my way to try not to do it again. But stuff happens, right? Um, and then here's another guy that got the shit parking award from work. This is something apparently they do once a month. Uh, anyone who doesn't park properly gets this award. And again, it's a printed docket and a printed card of some sort. Uh, so people obviously have encountered this before. Here's another one Learn to park with manners. You must think I am a sourdine. Eh, yeah, if you could go ahead and park in your own spot, man, that would be great. And then there's a drawing of a guy smoking a coffee, wearing a tie. It's a stick drawing with a guy, some nice head of hair on it, uh, having a cup of coffee, leaning on a desk. Like it's a lot of work, right? A lot of work. Maybe it's a way to vent. Maybe that's how you how you get past it and not uh, and not want to punch somebody in the face. Here's the last one. Congratulations, a printed card as well. Um, you know, obviously been used more than once. Congratulations, you've won the Inconsiderate Parkers Prize by occupying two parking spaces with one very small car and doing this for more than a month, far longer than anyone else has achieved. So it's a sarcastic kind of passive-aggressive way to get the message across. I'd much prefer you write the note, frankly, than uh, get angry and go knock on your neighbor's door. Anyway, it was a lot funnier when I put it together than maybe it is coming out the other side. When we come back, we're going to turn the turn the tables a little bit. We're going to talk to a guest about uh, psychiatric burnout. The psychiatrists themselves are burning out. And, man, when, they're, when our uh, when our psychologists and psychiatrists are burning out, we have a real problem here. Come back for break. That's what we're talking about Yonabud, 640 Toronto. Addiction is a
0: serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yonabud on 640 Toronto. We found that pretty universally, the pandemic seemed
2: to be impacting all physicians.
3: Mental health and physical health can no longer be viewed as two separate things and we need both aspects of our health to be on point uh, to be healthy and that's true for physicians as well.
1: Welcome back to the show. This is Yona on the road to recovery here on 640 Toronto. Thank you for joining us this evening. You know, there's a demand for mental health uh, care um, and as that mental health demand um, skyrockets beyond belief, beyond anybody's possible uh, predictions, um, the, the 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 supply the support groups, you know, the doctors, the nurses, psychiatrists, psychologists, but specifically at the at the level of therapy, psychiatrists, psychologists, folks like me, um, we are dealing with an un- an unprecedented amount of um, demand in terms of people needing our time and uh, abilities and skills and whatever. But it, you know, it's not without taking its toll. You know I do what I got to do, and everyone else I'm sure does what they need to do to kind of stay focused and uh, able to do our job. Uh, but Toronto psychiatrist Dr. Yusra Ahmad, <coughs> um, she's in her she got an infectious laugh. We're going to talk to her in a minute. I'm hoping she's going to laugh for me. You're going to have to tell a joke. But the single mother and the survivor of domestic violence worries about her 12-year-old daughter learning virtually online school is difficult for her and difficult also for. for child in for her. She had to leave her in-person work at Toronto General Hospital when her daughter's schooling moved to online in 2020 and is relieved that classrooms are now set up to go back to school, as it was last week. Uh, she now sees patients online, many of whom struggle with the same pandemic stress, loneliness, and anxiety that she suffers from, like most of us. Besides her practice, she's an advocate against gender-based or racial and religious violence and uh, understands that from personal experience. Uh, Dr. Ahmad, thank you for joining us tonight. Dr. Ahmad. Okay. Well, I'm having just some technical difficulty. Me. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Are you there? Yes, I'm here. Okay. Okay. Get out of the, come out from underneath okay. the closet. <laughs> open the, open the door and, and let, you know, tell the kids to go away and you don't have to hide in the closet.
3: Oh gosh.
1: <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Right. I actually had a patient tell me they were doing their work from their, um, their walk-in closet for like, like a month. And uh, I said, well, you got to probably find a better solution. i got people working out of their cars. Anyway, doctor, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, one of these days I'm really hoping I'm going to hear that infectious laugh that people talk about. Crazy times, right? I don't know if therapists like you and I can say that, but crazy times, unprecedented for sure. Um, how are you managing?
3: Uh Absolutely. I agree with you. Uh, These are unprecedented times. uh, And you can hear me, right?
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah, absolutely. I promise.
3: Okay, good, good. Uh, How am I managing? Well, uh, like everybody else, I'm doing the best I can with what I have.
1: Okay. So what is it? I I mean, I'm going to drill down a little bit, if you don't mind. It's kind of my job. But you can stop me at any point that you feel uncomfortable. What does that mean? Like if I was your patient and I said, Doc, I'm just doing the best I can with what I got. What would you say to them? Would you say, okay, well, that sounds great. Or would you say, okay, can you can you tell me a little bit about that?
3: Yes, I would be drilling down. Okay, so um, tell
1: me a little bit about that.
3: Y- yeah. So, you know, uh, I think... I think I am in a position of some privilege, right? That I have the ability to pay for certain services. So I am, for example, going to see a chiropractor regularly because my stooped posture uh, from hunching wow. over all my devices is really getting to me. So you know they're they're making a killing off of me. My uh, chiropractor is <laughs> a therapist.
1: <laughs> There's that laugh. Thank you. <laughs> yeah no but you know what but you know what i you know all kidding aside like you know you and i both know that the physical part has an awful lot to do with how the mental part works right you know maybe you want to share how that that experience works for you like after your adjustments and such do you really feel a relief like that stress relief
3: absolutely i do uh yes you cannot separate these aspects of a human being and I will add to it, there's the mental part, there's the physical part, there's the emotional, and there's the spiritual. Uh, and all, all parts need to be attended to. And furthermore, you know, the provision of proper um, mental health care just cannot occur in a vacuum. We're all interconnected beings, right? So uh, yeah, so on that note, for example, I take regular walks in the park by my house if I can. Um I live in a condo building and there's a gym so I was going there regularly as well but Excellent. uh unfortunately it's been closed down again <laughs> yeah yeah and mm-hmm. I feel it I feel it so yes exercise affects your mood it affects your ability to sleep good uh, proper nutrition you know all of these things matter uh Again, like I'm saying, because I'm a physician, I have a measure of privilege in terms of accessing some of this, but others in our society uh, can't, you know, And, and this is something we need to look into.
1: So that's a great segue for me, actually. So what's happening to the patients who, like, actually can't be seen in person? So I have a practice. Uh, I, I, sw- I, I I moved quickly to a virtual practice, and we see a ton of people virtually that I've never seen in person. But I think if there's people who have, you know, let's say, seen, you know, been seeing you regularly in office and now need to see you on screen, how are you feeling that's affecting your ability to, you know, to provide the care that they need and their ability, more importantly, to receive it?
3: Yes, uh, many of my patients have been asking me when I'll go back to in-person therapy sessions because there's a huge difference when you are um, face-to-face with somebody in a room. There's the therapeutic space. You know, a lot of uh, patients I'm seeing are doing what you said, like hiding in rooms or going for walks outside to ensure confidentiality because they don't want to, you know their spouse to hear what they're saying or other family members. They don't have that privacy in their own home. And on that note, uh, you know, home is not a safe place for everybody. Uh, you know, I'm a I'm a big advocate uh, around gender based violence, and I suffered from this situation myself when I was in uh, residency. And it's something our provincial government doesn't pay any heed to. You know, um, it's a predictable. Uh, outcome in times of economic and social crises that there's an uptick in violence across the board, but particularly when it comes comes to interpersonal violence at home.
1: Yeah, I would say the um, you know I, I did a I did a show about a month or so ago, maybe a bit longer on domestic violence, and had some legal people on to talk about you know it from a you know legal perspective. I deal with a lot of patients uh that uh, come to us with issues around uh traumatic stress related to violence and so on um but you know and by the way if people don't understand who this lady is this is not just anybody This is Dr. Yusra Ahmed. She's a physician. She's a psychiatrist, a group therapy for Ryder, but she's also the creator of something called Mindfully Muslim. And we're going to get to that in a minute. Um, Clearly, you're stretched out. In other words, you know, you're touching, trying to touch the world in places where you think you can make a difference. And, you know, God bless you for that. But at the same time, at the same time of stretching out, like you and I both know, right? At this, you know, times of stretching out, trying to just help a little bit more and do a little bit more. Sometimes, you know, us as, us as providers of the care think that maybe we're a little more superhuman than we really are, and at some point we stretch ourselves thin. I I, I found myself scaling it back a little bit as much as it made me cry to turn certain patients away, but, you know, I needed to get myself together. Um, yes. From the things, that you're, the things that you're involved in, I'm sure this is not just something you do when you're practicing, but I'm sure this is something you take to bed with you.
3: Yes, I uh, live and breathe this stuff. And, uh, yeah, we are drowning in it now, you know. Uh, this, I mean, really, we are witnessing system failure, in my opinion. And the alarm bells were ringing for many of us a long time ago, but really nobody in actual positions of power paid any heed. Um, and I would argue that we live in a, a, a very sick society uh, and that the mental health issues, the addictions crises swirling around us and overwhelming us, and this is a symptom. The burnout of the providers are just strong signals of a broken and ailing system.
1: How does this get and better, sure. doctor? We, we, we've got limited time, but uh, let me ask you something before I do lose you. Can, would you come on again? Because I'd love to talk to you about other stuff. You just sound like a the kind of person I'd like to you know share and chat with. Would you be kind absolutely. enough to come back another time? Okay, perfect. Uh, absolutely. You said, what, else are you, what else? What else you doing at nine thirty on a Saturday night, right? <laughs> 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 okay, so listen, right before I let you go, how does this get any better? Or does it get any better? we got about a minute.
3: Mm. Well, I think it, it, it gets better from the ground up. People need to band together and demand change. Uh, you know, we have to hold our politicians accountable. And uh, we need to work together in creative and dynamic ways to come up with uh, solutions. In fact, the solutions are well known. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you know, it's a, a matter of finding the will to implement them.
1: And, and where do you think that will is going to come from? Is it going to is it going to require you know the, the the misfortune of one of our politicians' families, or you know someone in the Trudeau family, God forbid, having an overdose? Like, what's it going to take? for our leaders, quote-unquote, and I say that tongue-in-cheek, our, our leaders to wake up and realize that the pandemic is one thing, but you're not going to jab yourself away from the mental health and addiction crisis that's going to be at least decades coming.
3: Yes. Yes, well, uh, yes, leaders, when it hits them personally, for sure they pay attention differently. But in addition, they they are our public servants. They work for us. We are their constituents. And we need to become more politically
1: engaged. Well, it sounds like, uh, <laughs> sounds like burnout or not. You still got a ton of energy. I want to see where you get some of that and talk to you another time for sure. <laughs> uh, um, thank you for joining us. I'm sure, so sorry you ran out of time. You're, you're, you're a wonderful guest and hope to talk to you again. Dr. Yusra Ahmed, she is a physician, psychiatrist, group therapy facilitator, also the creator of Mindfully Muslim. Um, just a really nice lady trying to make the world a better place. Thank you for being on the show with us. When we come back from break, we're going to talk about your drinking consumption. Yeah, I know. I bring it up every once in a while. Want to hear from you? 416-870-6400. Outside the area, triple eight two two five eight two five five. You're taking you're taking January off. You're doing that dry January thing. Well, we're going to talk about that a little bit in the next couple of segments. So look forward to hearing back from you, Yona six forty Toronto. Welcome
0: back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud. On- on 640 Toronto.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to Bud here on the Road to Recovery and I appreciate you joining us. You want to chime in 416-870-6400 or 888-225-8255. I want to hear from you right now. We're talking about drinking during the pandemic or just drinking in general. Why some people are turning to more mindful consumption. What's mindful consumption? One would think it means thinking about what you drink before you drink it. And non-alcoholic options are on the rise. Yes, they are. It's possible to actually socialize without booze. So it's one thing to not consume it. It's another thing to not be around it. It depends on the type of individual you are. And if you're fighting some kind of uh, um, substance abuse disorder or alcohol abuse disorder, or you feel like you may have an alcohol issue, then just... Probably not being around it's a better solution than trying to fit in with something that, you know, smells like and acts like and is like alcohol but isn't. Um, But for some people, they don't have substance abuse disorder. They don't have issues around their consumption. Maybe they're consuming a little more than they like. And, you know, that just might make them feel real lousy the next day. And not everybody drinks to make their lousy day go away. Some people do it just for fun yes they do some people do it just for fun and if so and you don't you know you want to go to the bar with your buddies and you want to kind of hang out but you just don't want to consume the alcohol you're not going to be triggered by it because that's not your thing it's not something you you, you battle right like many but it's not something you battle well in, 9 years ago this woman Laura Wilby She started to worry about how much alcohol she was consuming. She says, I was a bit of an idiot with drinking. She said, I'm British. We do it really, really well. And I decided that I really had to knock it on its head. Well, not just British drink well. I think all of us do a pretty good job, Canadians included. But while Alcoholics Anonymous may work for other people and things like Smart Recovery and so on, that wasn't for her. Nope. She decided to co-found her own group called Club Soda to help others become more mindful of their drinking habits or just quit drinking altogether. And she goes on to say, we're not all the same. We need different things for different people. She told Current's guest host, Mark Kelly on the show, it's a really important, it's really important that we find different ways to change our drinking habits. Well, okay, <laughs> you can just stop altogether. I mean, change our drinking habits. You know, I decided that Eating red meat, uh, especially in steak form as opposed to ground red meat, just didn't make me feel good. I have you know various physical things to deal with. Diverticulitis is one of it. It's not recommended that for people with diverticulitis or prone to diverticulitis would have would eat red meat. So I scale back on my red meat. I have ground beef when I can, but wasn't like I didn't have to have fake red meat to make it work. I didn't go and get myself beyond, you know, beyond beef stuff and uh, whatever the other synthetic ones are called. It uh, smells like burning tires, by the way, if you've ever cooked that stuff. Um, anyway, so, you know, for me, it was a question of if it wasn't healthy, didn't work, had to stop. Okay, it doesn't work for everybody. But if drinking is a problem for you, it's a different situation than just deciding it's not healthy for you when you want to stop. So according to the March reports from Statistics Canada, Um, One in four Canadians who drank before the pandemic said their alcohol consumption increased during the pandemic. And in some cases, it was simply boredom, stress, social isolation, blah, blah, blah. All the reasons people claim they need to drink even more. However, nearly half as many Canadians, or nearly as many Canadians, excuse me, have been scaling their drinking back. In January, of course, one in five Canadians, or about 22%, reported a decrease in their alcohol consumption. I don't think this has anything to do with the pandemic. This is just like a dry January thing, and it's just something we do, right? It just seems to be something that we do. It goes on here to say, let me think what this is saying. Oh, sales of, uh, I'm looking for actual numbers, but I can't find it. Sales of low or non-alcoholic beverages are on the rise around the world, including Canada, but it's not giving me numbers. Uh, It's becoming even easier for the sober curious we're gonna to get to that in just a second. What's sober curious? Sober curious to adjust their alcohol habits as they choose. Okay, what does it mean to be sober curious? So it was a new, frankly, a new saying for me, a new a new caption for me until I produced uh, worked on producing uh, this segment. So Carrie Benson, he's a registered uh, dietitian in Philadelphia and co-author book of Mocktail Party, says the idea of being sober curious is about being mindful of what you're drinking. Why and how it makes you feel. Okay, so it's the second time I've heard this concept of being mindful of what you're drinking. But aren't you always mindful? Shouldn't you always be mindful of what you're eating and drinking? Shouldn't you always be thinking about what you're putting in your mouth? I don't know why this is like a, a new thing to suddenly be paying attention to what you're doing and how much you're drinking. If you're not paying attention to what you're doing and how much you're drinking, chances are you might have a drinking problem. So I'm trying to figure out how this how there's this range of people who... Um, you know, are now suddenly talking about being more more mindful of what they drink versus, you know, I guess drinking not mindfully, meaning without thinking about what they're consuming. So I think that there's, we should, as a, as, a, as a people, we should, as all of us, should also always be mindful of what we're putting into our systems and what works and what doesn't work and what's healthy for us and what isn't. I don't think it's necessarily just a a January thing or something that we should be doing. But anyway, I like where it's going. I think the concept makes sense. So that leads people towards drinking less because potentially you're not drinking at all, right? Because if you're thinking about the next drink and you're saying to yourself, eh, don't really need it, don't really want it, going to feel crummy later, think I'm just going to pass. So that leads to really good things for me. I like when people stop doing the things that don't make them feel good. As a therapist, as a crisis worker, I find it, you know, uh, I find that that's encouraging when people have the, the strength and the ability to be able to stop the things that just don't make them feel good, you know, without any huge intervention or therapy. I mean, you know, therapy is a great thing. Uh, but, you know, sometimes we can make choices on our own, right? We're, we were seeing a lot of people drinking more alcohol as they were doing research on the link between alcohol and health. It's just a start started to make us question our own relationships. Uh, Kelly goes on to say uh, relationships with alcohol. So now people are, she decided to give up booze for a month, and while Benson went back to drinking, she says, for a little bit, she's since stopped drinking altogether. Um, Bob um, Hudema, if I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, we couldn't get him on the air, but anyway, Bob Hudema, he's helping provide one of those alcohol-free options for people like Benson, the writer, who wanted to try cutting back their booze or nixing it from their diet altogether. So, uh, but now understand that if you go into a bar, if you, know, you go into a, most bars, hopefully most establishments that serve alcohol, they have multiple choices for non-alcoholic drinks. Now, I'm not, I'm not a drinker. I don't spend much time in bars, uh, but I do know that there's tons of beer choices—not tons, but many beer choices um, from manufacturers that you would recognize as major brands. So, those that are providing well-known alcohol. Uh, infused drinks are now providing non-alcohol, uh, related product that apparently tastes the same, smells the same, um, kind of looks the same, uh, but doesn't have any alcohol. Uh, but there's not a lot of harder products. There's some mixed, um, cocktails, uh, non-alcohol cocktails that are very sugary and sweet and whatever, pretty nauseating. I've had a couple, um, didn't work much for me. But anyway, this guy, Bob Hutma, he created, he's the president of Distillex. DeSellix uh, the Beverages, they're here in Toronto, and they make an alcohol-free gin called Sobri. He said he came up with the idea after noticing booze was putting a damper on his productivity the day after having a few drinks, he woke up. He loved cocktails, he says, but I hate hangovers. So now he takes what he calls a flexitarian approach to drinking. And and this is interesting. If you're a social drinker, this is an interesting approach. He starts the evening with perhaps an alcoholic beverage, and then he immediately switches to non-alcoholic drink. So that's easy to do if you're a beer drinker. You can start with one real beer, you know, one alcohol infused beer, and then you can have, you know, a three or four beer after that that don't include alcohol. So it's a question of being able to make those choices uh, for yourself, right? Um, anyway, he goes on to, uh, he goes on to talk about uh, when I gave up uh, nine. When I gave it up nine years ago, uh, there wasn't anything out there. Now I can go into the pub and there's more than one beer, and there's at least a non-alcoholic spirit uh, that's out there that's available. Someone who likes socializing, that's great. I don't feel like I'm being treated differently anymore when I'm drinking non-alcoholic drinks. So this is a whole thing. The whole thing is trying to fit in, uh, trying to you know keep up with the you know the rest of your social social sphere and so on to see if in fact you can make this this thing work right. Uh, being able to live in a world of um, you know being social and hanging out with people and going to this your favorite your your same favorite bar that perhaps you might have gone to in the past uh, except this time without the alcohol. So that works right. If it might work for you because you know you're in that place and hopefully have a little more control over most. When we come back from break, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about this sober, curious concept. Um, but the, the you know it's not easy for everybody, and I think I want to share that so that we have a, an understanding that not everybody can just dial it back and um, do what they need to do to get their lives together when it comes to substances, especially when it comes to alcohol. So we'll be back in a minute. Don't go to Jeff to do, and uh, we'll pay for some of this airtime with some messages. Yonabad, 640 Toronto.
0: Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto.
1: And welcome back. Thank you for joining me tonight. This is Yona Bud here on the Road to Recovery. I appreciate you being here with us tonight. I want you to let, let you know that Natasha's on the board tonight, doing an amazing job. So if Natasha's mom is listening, good job, mom she's doing a great job great anyway just thought I'd do a shout out to Natasha's mom for her uh, but listen I, I want to carry on with this conversation about curious this sober curious stuff because alcohol is a big issue in our society and and, and you know I deal with um, in my day job I deal with people all day long that have <clears throat> that are running um you know running uh up against the the difficulty sometimes of giving up alcohol and controlling the amount of alcohol they do consume and so on. And um, I just thought we would spend a little bit more time because if you're on that line, and I know you might be out there, 416-870-6400-888-225-8255. Give us a call. Seriously, you can do it anonymously. We're not going to mention your name or say who you are, uh, but I'd love to hear from you. If you're finding that you're just, you know, maybe decided that booze isn't working for you in 2022, you know, 2022, the year of you. I heard that on the show for the first time. 22, year of you. It's the year you take care of yourself, self-care, and be a little more selfish, learn how to say no and all that stuff. We'll get into it another time. But 22, the year of you, right? I made it up. Um, I haven't figured out the animal that goes with it yet, but we'll find something. I'll uh, I'll get Natasha or Sophia to help me out with that. But Sarah Kate, she used to enjoy a lot of wine. She's an avid runner and a communications professional. And the mother, uh and, and she preferred cold climate Chardonnays. She's, um, in different kinds of drinks from Italy, different wines from Italy. But in her early 20, in early 2020, she realized her interest in wine had morphed into three to four glasses a night. And that's how it happens, right? It just creeps up. Suddenly you're having a glass of wine with dinner and it just tastes lovely. And you know, you're pairing and doing all that cool stuff, which matches, you know, alcohol or, or wine specifically to uh, to various meals right so you know you're pairing your food together and you're just realizing that you know you're having maybe two at dinner now and then maybe finishing that bottle after dinner because you know what the heck there's only a little bit left why bother putting it in the fridge like i get it but if it creeps up on you you wake up one day and you realize omg i'm banging back a bottle a night couple maybe on a saturday night this ain't healthy so she didn't feel good, and she realized that her children understood what she was doing to herself as well. So she tried to cut back and struggled to moderate her intake. So in the early days of the pandemic, she challenged herself to go dry for 30 days. She was blown away by how she felt, clearer, happier, and present, right? So being sober for 30 days, if you're used to drinking regularly uh, or using drugs of any kind on a, on a recreational or maybe not so recreational basis, being clean for a month, uh, makes a world of difference. Anyway, so she tried to, she tried to cut back and moderate her intake, and um, she found that she wasn't able to do that. Our society really never lets you go there. She says, "The only, the only know that you should be grabbing a drink because that's what everyone says. Hey, have a drink. Hey, come on, man, have one more beer, right?" Anyway, the, that summer, a friend offered her a non-alcoholic gin drink. It was called Sobri, uh, which is the drink that we talked about uh, being. Uh, here in toronto and it was made in stratford ontario the non-alcoholic beers and wines that she's tried so far hadn't really been her thing Uh, other drinks felt quite juvenile like juice or pop so in one one spirit substitute right tastes like horrible water she said she wasn't going to do it at all but someone out there said we should try this sobri stuff and this isn't a a commercial by the way for this fellow's uh drink uh but she was able to find something Uh, that worked for somebody out there cares about what people who don't drink um, are drinking. She remembers thinking, I realize that uh, we can be included uh, in in deciding, you know, what, what other options might be out there for some people. Anyway, dry January is popular for Canadians and so on. This guy, British journalist, uh, his name is Ruby Warrington. He popularized the term sober curious. We talked about that a little bit in the previous segment when she explored the uneasy relationship she was having with alcohol back in the, 2010s, talking to friends and family, she realized that she wasn't alone. People didn't necessarily see themselves as addicted or having a problem, but felt that their drinking, you know, was maybe a little out of control. And because we live in a culture that, you know, supports all that. So anyway, this, um, we Canadians span, let me hear, so when she started exploring her habits, there wasn't much to fill the void, mostly beers. We said unalcoholic beers, expensive, expensive sugary mocktails, let's pretend cocktails. Uh, some non-alcoholic spirits from the UK, which doesn't taste so great, apparently. Uh, Canadians spend 9.4 million a year on non-alcoholic spirits in 2019, and uh, in tw- and by 2020, that number jumped to 22 million, according to market research. Uh, it's a small fraction of the six billion dollar industry, you know, the alcohol industry. Anyway, this woman, Sarah K, created the website, Some Good Clean Fun in 2021. After a year, she embarked on an alcohol-free lifestyle, posting news and rece- news, receipts, reviews, excuse me, receipts, <laughs> recipes, reviews, and links to online marketplaces. So, it's a really, you should probably go there and have a look at it. Some good, clean, fun. Uh, it's a cool website. Uh, at Toronto's Cocktail Emporium, they only had C Dip, which is the only non alcoholic spirit, uh, that was available. And, uh, there weren't that many choices. So, back to our friend Bob Hudema, the founder of Dislex. This, this, uh, drink, Sobri, is making a big difference. People are finding it's tolerable. They actually enjoy it. Uh, he actually renovated his home, uh, this fellow. Wish we would have got him on, but who knows? Maybe, uh, Maybe he's busy doing something like shoveling out of his driveway. Anyway, he enjoyed a cocktail after work, but he didn't like the hangover, as we said before. Uh, the growing acceptance of things like veggie burgers and non-alcoholic beers, um, you know, he felt that there was an option. So he teamed up with the Niagara College's uh, research and innovation team uh, in 2018 to experiment on a gin alternative. He started with uh, gin for a reason, because spirits like or like whiskey, tequila, and vodka are strongly dominated by, you know, eth- an ethanol taste, right, which you which you can really, hard to recreate that, which we can put some burn in, but the taste of ethanol is unique and difficult to replicate, he says, Gin is a botanical forward, so there is more flavor to work with. So this is a non-alcoholic gin that you can use for mixed drinks and so on. Uh, his distilleries in Stratford, Ontario. Uh, so he's a local boy, as we said earlier. Flavor molecules prefer alcohol to water. So Hudema had to figure out how to get this flavor to stay in the water. He launched Sobri's non-alcoholic gin in fall of 2019, recently added an on non-alcoholic tequila. That's very cool. Hoping to capitalize on the U.S. thirst for margaritas, uh, which there's no age requirement to drink it because, of course, they're non-alcoholic and only markets to those above the legal. However, soberly only markets uh, to the those above the legal drinking age. The logic is that we're targeting people who already drink and made sober curious choices. Uh, Ontario's Liquor License and Control Act does not apply to beverages with less than 5% of alcohol. It's considered non-alcoholic. He was surprised by how well he did, especially with a $12 price tag. Uh, Bottle of Sobery is now $35, which is similar to the cost of alcoholic gin. Uh, He was on Dragon's Den in 2021 offering the dragon. Anyway, very cool idea, Uh, these non-alcoholic beverages and these non-alcoholic spirits. Here's what I'd like to see. I'd like to see someone open a sports bar with non-alcoholic beverages and vegan and vegetarian offerings and see what that does just for the heck of it, Right. Uh, we have Deborah on the phone from Etobicoke. We only got a minute or two with Deborah. How are you, to? How are you this evening, Deborah? How are you doing? Are you with me, Deborah? Okay, we can't hear you. So Deborah wanted to talk about her stress with drinking. Uh, Hello. I'm there. Are yeah, there? I'm here. Okay. Yes, uh,
4: you... I'm here. Um, yes, I'm doing good. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing well. So tell me about the stress drinking
4: well i um have in a situation very volatile uh and I know that I don't need to get into that uh um, so I know that there's times that I can probably drink uh you know if I had access or whatever probably every night um simply because I'm been held uh, very in a very bad situation by a roommate but in any event um but then i uh you know um Sorry, I'm a little stressed. I'm a little nervous, but then I, um, you know, wake up and then uh, decide. Well, no, I'm gonna make it a very, uh, you know, great day and um, do things, yep. uh, you know, at my ability uh, and write down like what I'm gonna achieve today, and it. I feel better, so, <laughs> and I oh, don't I... need to drink.
1: Well, I appreciate you sharing, and do me a favor if you want when you get off the phone here, because we're going to uh, get off the air here. We're going to go to break here on a big hour break on the hour. It's a much longer break, so I don't have that much time. But do me a favor if you're interested, um, give your, provide your number to our screener, and if you're open to it, I'd be glad to give you a call during the week and see if I can uh, help you with some uh, coping mechanisms that might make your life a little bit easier. If you're if you're open to it, did I lose you? Okay, I guess we lost Deborah somewhere. Anyway, when we come back. From, when we come back from break. There's a whole bunch of stuff to do. Uh, we're going to talk about these shootings in Toronto. It's a sad, sad story, to be joined by my good friend and my brother Louis March uh, from Zero Gun Violence. So go take a break. Go stretch your legs. Go have a drink. Go have a smoke. Go do whatever it is you need to do, and uh, we'll be right back here in a few minutes. Yonabud, six forty, Toronto. <laughs> Live,
0: interactive, and here to assist you if you need help. Dealing with addiction, mental health challenges, and more. This is Road to Recovery with your host, Yona Budd. Only on 640 Toronto.
1: Welcome back to Road to Recovery. This is Yona Budd here on 640 Toronto. I appreciate you joining us this evening. Get back on the bus. Get your arms in the window so nobody gets hurt. Strap yourself in and let's get ready to rumble. Anyway, yeah I'm trying to kind of lead you into it, but, I, but that's with a heavy heart. Uh, this 13 year old boy, as you might have heard uh, was charged with the second degree murder in the teens death in Toronto. Uh, they say a 13 year old boy was sec- charged with second degree murder after after second degree murder excuse me after shooting a 15 thir- year old uh, on Friday. It was around 11:30 p.m. when Wednesday when officers responded to a shooting in the underground parking garage of an apartment building at Gamble Road uh, Gamble Avenue near Pape and Cosborne. Uh, when officers arrived, um, they said a teenage boy was suffering from life, threatening gunshot wounds. He was later pronounced dead. Police have confirmed the identity of the victim as Jordan Carter. May he rest in peace and his family be uh, given some strength here and some support. Global News has learned he attended Lakeshore Collegiate Institute in Etobicoke, was living with his grandmother, actually. He was, the boy is now facing uh, second-degree murder charges under the Youth Criminal Justice Act. They can't give out his name. Uh, but he's scheduled to appear in court uh, this past Friday. Two handguns and ammunition were recovered in relation to this investigation. Uh, now we're going to be joined by my good friend, my brother, Louis March, who is um, the uh, co-founder of, uh, or is the founder, excuse me, of Zero Gun Violence Movement. Uh, Louis, how you doing tonight, brother?
5: Very good, my friend. Uh, you know, always good to be with you.
1: Yeah, I appreciate you finding the time. I know you're a busy guy when it comes to this kind of stuff, and just busy in general, Louis. The first thing I got to ask you: thirteen-year-old kid, two guns. It's the two gun. I mean, the whole situation's got me nauseated, but as I'm sure you, uh, but the um the the two gun part does that mean this kid was carrying two guns and, and ammunition, or was there perhaps another shooter that no one's uh, even talking about? They're saying that they're not looking for anybody else. Clearly, the the investigators are saying they're not looking for a second. Uh, a second uh, shooter but um, and, and you have any news on this or any interesting uh, anything you can sort of share
5: no, not, nothing beside what the media has reported and what the police have said yeah. and it just raises a lot of questions and uh,
1: What's the first thing that that comes to your mind when you, 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 I mean, you've been doing this forever. um, And, um, you know, I'm sure I'm not, you know, I know you, I know you well, I love you. We're brothers. I know that you never get hardened to this, but, you know, I'm sure you've heard story after story. This one has to really hit home for some reason, doesn't it? I mean, and if so, why?
5: Well, it's the age, 13 years old, uh, carrying guns, willing to shoot it, willing to take somebody's life. Uh, we, we we had a shooting last year with a 14-year-old girl getting shot. Yeah. Like what's going on here? The young people are carrying guns, and they're not afraid to use them. And uh, that is a scary thing. Uh, I'm not sure what the circumstances are, because the police have not really said too much. But we had Houdini, who got shot, was it last year the year before? He was walking downtown in broad, bright daylight, and he had two people with him, a 15-year-old and an 18-year-old, both carrying guns. So the writing has been on the wall. The evidence is out there. Young people are carrying guns, and they're not afraid to use it. But taking somebody's life, and I'm sure the 15-year-old and the 13-year-old knew each other.
1: Here's the here's the thing. I, I, I remember years ago, I not several years ago on another network, I did a, you and I I think did a show about this, and um, I brought on a, a psychiatrist out of London, Ontario, um, and um, we were talking about the mindset of a young person and what it takes to actually. It's one thing to, sh- to have a gun and you know shoot and spray and whatever. It's another thing to actually point it at another human being. And fire to to kill, shoot to kill, um, and he went on to say that that type of um, mental uh, upset, that that type of psychological disturbance, psychiatric disturbance, is often started in the womb, and when the and when the the baby mother is you know exposed to violence or you know anger, yelling, screaming, that kind of stuff, often the child comes out um, somewhat prone to violence and anger and yelling and screaming as well. So um, I don't know how much this plays into the thinking behind this thing, but um, you know, the, the kids that we're talking about today brother when we're, we're not talking about ganged up kids here we're not talking about kids that are involved in a you know in some form of of uh, of criminal activity I don't think uh, you know this boy that got shot uh, shot and killed you know lived with his grandma in in uh, in Etobicoke, was a nice kid from everything I've read you know helped everybody else in the neighborhood the kids learn how to skate in the skate park uh, uh, skateboard in the skate park and so on what's I mean have you had a chance to communicate with anybody in this community yet?
5: Not in the community, because it's still fresh. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, you know, we've been speaking about this for the longest time. The characteristics of gun violence has changed dramatically. The age of the people, the willingness and brazenness of the shootings, they're not, The they, violence has become normalized in their life. And they act it out. And one young kid said to me, his way of dealing with his personal trauma is by being violent, right? Uh, we talk about the, the birth to prison pipeline now, not the school to prison pipeline, because you're right, it starts early. And this is what's scary. Uh, if you speak to Marcel, Marcel will say that they had codes. They regulated who carried guns and when they would shoot them and, and circumstances. The kids today are using it to feel empowered. And to glorify and celebrate. They're not thinking of the consequences, Yona. The average person will think of the consequences, and that might become the deterrent. But for these kids, they think they're invincible. And carrying a gun for somebody, using a gun, they don't go through the normal thinking process, the usual thinking process.
1: Is, is this just something you think that, you know, um, you know, you and I did a show a while ago with Marcel Wilson, who you're referring to as Marcel, uh, Marcel Wilson, one by one movement, um, who's also a close friend of ours. Uh, but you know, we had Marcel on and a couple of kids, and I remember that 15-year-old kid saying to me, "I don't think about the future because I don't plan to. I don't think I'm going to have one. I expect to get shot and killed any day." You think that's the mindset of a lot of these young people? That you know, gun violence for them is okay. You know, if I shoot, I shoot. I get shot. I get shot. Where the where the value, the life value structure, seems to be you know unbalanced to say the least.
5: Well, a 15-year-old said to me, "Yona, he fears living more than he fears dying." And I said, You know nothing about living. You're still in diapers. He says, I don't know what he has to go through on a daily basis to survive. So they welcome death. Well not they. Some of them welcome death. A twenty year old, we went and said I went and said, Happy birthday to him. He said, Louis, I didn't think I was going to get to twenty. So they've given up life while they're still in diapers. And if they don't value their life, you think they're going to value someone else's life? That is the
1: question. And exactly. how did we get you, here? And, and you know, and and you know, the the study goes or the article goes on to say that the police are now investigating. Uh, you know, these guns. They believe that the firearms they they uh, secured uh, were brought across the border from the United States. You know, you and I have talked about this many, many times about the operation exactly. of guns coming across the border. But what you know, what what's the plan? Like I know you and your team, and uh, um, you know you and your team are out there talking to families, communities, people like Marcel are working the streets, actually, you know, working with families and trying to make a difference and empowering kids to have other choices than violent choices. you know money's being talked about you know we talk about it every time we get on the air are you mm-hmm. seeing any different are you seeing any difference in 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 governmental support now that the kids are getting younger the shootings are getting more frequent are we getting any indication because i know you're right there uh with your ear to the to the ground so to speak when it comes to government choices and decisions you sit so on many the of the board.
5: City, the city of yeah. toronto is about to release their safetyo uh anti-gun violence plan. It's a 10 year plan and they've consulted with us and they've incorporated some of our ideas, but it's basically bringing all the key stakeholders to the table, Yona, along with the three levels of government to work this out. Because we have to ask the question, how are the guns getting across the border? How are they getting into the communities? And what is being done to interrupt that supply, right? So the access to guns, the kids now are carrying semi-automatics. Not little handguns anymore. And they are emboldened by using it because they can, they even film it, post it on social media, and brag about what they're doing. Right? So the thinking process is not at that level where they think of the consequences. The government now is trying to address this, but we don't have 10 years for this to unfold. We don't even have 10 minutes. We need immediate, urgent action from the government because, as you, you're correct, money is being spent. But we call it dead money because it's not getting to the population that is more likely to pick up guns and get involved in criminal activity. It's a feel-good money. You know, we spent $10 million on this. We, like, we, we had a premier that took $25 million out of after-school programming and gave it to the police and said he's from the old school He believes in having more boots on the ground. Those kids that were involved in after-school programming, where do you think they went? We had COVID.
1: On the street, exactly.
5: Of course. When when, when COVID came, uh, the community centers were shut down. You can't even hang out at a school, after school anymore. You can't hang out at McDonald's anymore. Where are these children hanging out? And how can we reach them with positive alternatives if they're hanging out? in uh, underground parking lot with, with mattresses and lights and stuff and music. They're creating their own unsafe spaces.
1: Louis, hang on, on, hang on for it. I'm not
5: going to blame it on COVID, but that's a, it's, a, it's a combination of things where they're working in a different, at a different level right now.
1: Louis, hang on would you during break I'd like to have you come back and uh, talk about this some more and uh, we never seem to have enough time so just hang in there over break and uh, we'll come back to you here uh, in just a couple of minutes uh, we'll Thank come you. back for break we're going to continue with uh, Louie March the uh, founder of zero-gun violence movement one of the guys out there trying to really make a difference not just talk about it uh, Yona Bud here 640 Toronto
0: welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto On Wednesday,
3: January 19th, 2022, at approximately 11.30 p.m., officers from 55 Division responded to the underground parking garage of an apartment building in the Pape and Gamble area for a shooting. Officers located a 15-year-old boy who was suffering from a life-threatening gunshot wound. He was pronounced deceased at the scene. Our investigation has led to the arrest of a 13-year-old boy, and he has been charged with second-degree murder. The Youth Criminal Justice Act prevents us from disclosing his name we have seized two handguns and ammunition in relation to this investigation. So a lot of kids start carrying guns, nice. um, knives. Violence yeah. keeps co- becoming bigger and bigger every day. And it's more and, and it's being, like, OK. Like, it's not OK. And people are just, like, normalizing it. In this case, the involvement of two teen boys is almost unimaginable. And as a community, we should be devastated. It is a sad and unfortunate example of the proliferation of handguns in our city. I got a
4: lot to say about this subject. I'm a mom of two boys, and I'd specifically like to address the caller that called in and said that parents aren't teaching kids respect anymore.
1: Mm.
4: I think that the respect that he's talking about, teaching kids how to fire arms, teaching kids you know, who's the boss, I'm glad that you hate me, you haven't taught that kid respect, you've taught that kid to hate you. And what you get is a traumatized adult that then goes out in the world and re-traumatizes everybody else. You want to blame the parents? How about the community? How about how our communities are no longer together raising these kids? You know, it takes a village. Mm. Where are the villages?
1: Welcome back. This is Yona Bud here on the Road to Recovery with my good friend, my brother, Louis March, from uh, the founder of Zero Gun Violence Mo- Movement. Louis, I'm sure you heard the clip on the outset. <clears throat> you know, we are uh, <clears throat> we had a shooting again this morning here in the parking lot at uh, Keel and Ingram, just south of Lawrence. You know the area, so do I. Uh, some uh, gentleman was shot, 19-year-old kid. Uh, was shot, and um, a couple of guys drove away in a car at uh, around 12.40 a.m. in the morning. There's Some some form of sort of party was gathering at a commercial or industrial unit, uh, exactly to your point, exactly to your point, which you said earlier. We believe there was some sort of party, the police say, at a commercial or industrial unit that led to the investigation. Altercation took place in the alleyway behind the unit and so on, and found the male uh, suffering, and off we go, you know, the end of that story. So it's exactly that. Let's go back. Um, if you don't mind, uh, if you're just joint chiming in here, this I'm on the phone. Uh, on, on the phone, I'm joined here with Louis March, um, the founder of Zero Gun Violence. We are mm-hmm. talking about the proliferation of violence, Louis. That these these kids in these underground parking lots and the and the world that they're making for themselves because they have nowhere to go. Um, Is this something that is a result of the fact that we've, you know, you and I have been talking along with Marcel and others, talking about uh, hubs that we need to create, more social hubs and places for kids to hang out, Um, even during, excuse me, even during a pandemic. There's no reason why outdoor outdoor activities couldn't have been created and, and put together. We're just, I don't know, man, just, we seem to not be, you know... We care but we don't care. All this money that you're talking about, the, this feel-good money, what's it gonna take, do you think, for us to as a society to wake up and, and realize what the hell's going on here?
5: I'm gonna tell you something, Joe. As of today, there's been nine homicides due to gun violence in the city of Toronto for this year. Nine. Okay. The peak that we've had was fifty-two in nine in two thousand and five, the year of the gun, fifty-two. If we multiply nine times twelve that's 108 yeah. isn't that scary shouldn't that scare people into doing the right thing now
1: and that's my point man like like exactly that's exactly my point you would think that that like you know i don't know how tory and and his people and ford and their people you know how they sleep at night knowing that you know there's all kinds of stuff that could be done, like they should be opening they should be you know opening trailers and hubs and are you you know RVs and stuff so kids can come and hang out in the back of something or in a park somewhere we're doing nothing to give them if an was, alternative they, to hanging out and doing, making center, bad choices
5: If there was a community center in that area that was open, like we talk about the nine to five service model Yona from nine a m to five p m for this population, the service model must be from nine p m to five a.m Who's going to work that shift? Nobody. So this is where society has really dropped the ball in that if you really want to engage this population, have extended hours. Look at those hubs, those areas, right, and create safe spaces where they can come and they can be around people like Marcel, myself, others that actually do care, right? So we have to be bold with our response. We cannot use the traditional ways of dealing with gun violence. It's not the same type of gun violence that we, we had 10 years ago. And the government now has, the city now has the safety plan. And I've looked at it and it looks very in- intensive, but by the time they unfold that, before it becomes implemented, are we gonna continue at this, at this trend? It's 108 homicides for this year if we just do a, a, a quick calculation.
1: So let me That's ask you something. Twice you,
5: you worse, see, we, twice our
1: worst year. Let me ask you something. You you and I and I hear your passion, brother, and I'm, I'm I'm just so sorry that you you and I even have to keep talking about this. But if we don't, nobody will. Maybe who knows, right? But you know, you said that they were listening. That that you you were they, you got you were consulted. You and Marcel and the and the crew were were consulted by by government in terms of putting out this plan. Can you give us a? We only got a couple of minutes left, but can you give us a? Um, a sneak preview do you think of of some of those uh some of those uh, strategies that they're talking about perhaps the ones that you've add, you've added to the to the equation
5: i think the most important one is that they've brought the key stakeholders to the table and they've committed to the plan itself so we're talking about the board of education we're talking about housing we're talking about policing public health right they've come to the table and now, now they've agreed that this is a collaborative effort that is needed, and that's important for us. They talk about funding community outreach initiatives or engaging community in a meaningful way. The first word in community safety is community. It is not politics, politicians, and it's not police. So there's a more structural way of engaging uh, community in the solutions, which is something that Marcel and others have been speaking about for years. But by the time they implement this and bring it out, where are we going to be at, right? Uh, They've also speaking about dealing with trauma in the communities. If you go into one community right now, it might be bright, active, energetic, and lively. You go into another part of the city where violence is normalized, it is shut down totally. These people are traumatized. One mother says she is not going to allow her three children to take garbage out at night in case something happens. This is Toronto 2022. The trauma in these areas uh, is the, it has become the foundation this, for, for the violence that's taking place. And the, the reports that we're seeing now is they're beginning to recognize that and they want to deal with it in terms of putting the resources and supports into these neighborhoods to deal with trauma that has been undiagnosed and not dealt with for years that is feeding into the cycle of violence my friend
1: well listen brother i'm uh, i'm always glad to talk to you You're, you know i wish we could have a better better answers better solution we'll have you come back on again and again Till we can come up with a solution that people actually pay attention to and listen to. But uh, God bless you and the people that do the hard work that you do. And uh, I just love you for it. Louis March, my good friend, my brother. He's the founder of Zero Gun Violence Movement, a good friend of the show. And uh, just one of those guys out there grinding it through the snow and the hail and the pandemic and all <laughs> just to, to try to make a difference. Thank you, brother. And uh, we'll talk Thanks, again Yono. soon.
5: Really my appreciate pleasure. you. Really appreciate you, Yona, for giving yeah. us this opportunity to say this.
1: My pleasure, brother. When we come back, uh, when we come back, we're going to take a little move here. Uh, We're going to move in a different direction. We're going to talk about psychedelics and um, what that's going to do for us in terms of treatment. Uh, So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Yonah Bud, 640 Toronto.
0: Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yonah Bud on 640 Toronto.
2: It's a very, very strict application. It has to come from a physician and or a therapist, and it has to tick many boxes. Um, You have to be severe or in a life-threatening situation. You have to have tried everything else. My partner, who's a psychiatrist, um, has looked me in the eye and says psychedelics are going to transform her profession as a psychiatrist.
1: Thank you and welcome back. You're on the road to recovery here with Yona Budd on six forty Toronto. We appreciate you joining us this evening. A doctor and a psychologist say that Health Canada's moved to allow physicians to request restricted psychedelic drugs for patients as part of their psychotherapy. It's a positive step in the right direction in terms of transforming mental health care. They say the recent change to the special access program isn't enough, though. We still have a huge amount of work to do because these medicines could really, really revolutionize the entire mental health field, according to Dr. Michael Verbora. Verbora, excuse me, who works as the medical director at Field Trip Health here in Toronto, and um, I don't want to get too far ahead. He says, with the, where the science is going, but I do really, really believe that if people have a process to start their own healing, it can lead to a much, much better world for most people. Uh, Health Canada has said requests to be considered on a case-by-case basis for serious or life-threatening conditions, uh, and where other conventional treatments have failed and are unsustainable uh, for or unsuitable, excuse me, for uh, patients. Of uh, reboro uh, goes on to say that uh, change isn't designed to have a wait list because it's meant for emergencies. Health Canada has said applications will be processed within two days, but it's unclear when a decision would be made. Joining me this evening is Ronan Levy. He's the uh, executive chairman of Field Trip Health. Thank you, Ronan, for joining us this evening. How are you?
5: Uh, My pleasure.
2: I am doing okay. I'm actually recovering from uh, a case of COVID. So if I sound a little bit coffee or sniffly, I apologize, but uh, I'm on the mend.
1: No, I was going to say, hey, what's up with the sexy voice? And before you out me on the air, um, I know I owe you, I owe you a bagel and a coffee. So I just figured I'd let you know, hundred thousand people hear me tell you that. So uh, we're definitely <laughs> going to have to get together. But but get over the COVID and send me a negative test anyway, Ronan. Um, the, here we are uh, at a at a at a place where I think you know you and your folks have worked real hard to get to, uh, where now uh, the government's considering the use of uh, of magic mushrooms, uh, perhaps ketamine, LSD, MDMA. Uh, which is uh, the con- active ingredient in ecstasy? Uh, lots of ch- stuff changing on the horizon in terms of the ability to access it, uh, but I guess the um, the threshold still becomes almost impossible for the average person. Are we still seeing that? I mean, you know, you you're, maybe we should tell people a little bit about what Field Trip does first, um, and then maybe carry on and answer that question. Field Trip uh, is is committed to doing what? Yeah,
2: exactly. So we're really we're, uh, building infrastructure necessary to deliver psychedelic-assisted therapy. So across North America, we have 11 locations providing ketamine-assisted therapy. So there's no restriction on access to ketamine or ketamine-assisted therapy in most jurisdictions around the world. Uh, and in the Netherlands, we're actually working with psilocybin-assisted therapy because it is legal there using psilocybin truffles. Uh, so that's what we're doing, and we're seeing just Absolutely incredible results with the patients who come through our therapies. You know, on average, most people have four to six ketamine sessions over the course of, say, four to six weeks on average, uh, interspersed with psychotherapy sessions, integration sessions. And we see patients improve from severe depression and anxiety symptoms going down to mild symptoms, Uh, And those benefits sustained for 120 days or or longer on average. So as far as I'm aware, and certainly I'm not objective, but as far as I'm aware, uh, I don't don't think there's a better treatment option for depression or anxiety out there bar none right now. And I think the the things that are coming down the pipes with psilocybin and MDMA-assisted therapy are only going to further improve the results that we're already seeing.
1: What type of, um, you know, I'm a little, I'm a little sort of, you know, curious. The type of therapy that supports the, um, is it, is it, am I talking about a trip here? Am I talking about a psychedelic trip? Or am I talking about a treatment? To, like, how do you refer to the experience?
2: Yeah, we use the term trip. We use the term journey. So, so what we're talking about here, what a typical experience would be like, and it, and it does depend on the nature of the medicine. Uh, so the experience with MDMA might be different from psilocybin, might be different from ketamine. But what we're talking about presently is a person would come in, you know, after we do our screening, both medically and from a psychiatric perspective, uh, meet with a therapeutic team. After that first meeting, they come back uh, usually a separate day uh, for, for the first ketamine session. Um, it's usually a low dose of ketamine, uh, but it can be pretty consuming. And you do generally have a relatively psychedelic experience, as, as many people might conventionally conceive of. Uh, there is a therapist sitting with you the entire time. Um following the the effects of the ketamine, which lasts about an hour to an hour and a half, it's, it's not a terribly long experience. Uh, there's an opportunity to talk with your therapist. Most people are not terribly verbal during the actual trip itself, uh, but afterwards they, they tend to share what came up. And I think that's an important part of the therapeutic process. Um, And then, you know, a day or two later, we do an integration session, which is there's no drug involved. There's no medicine. We're just using conventional cognitive behavioral therapy techniques, motivational interviewing, behavioral activation, that kind of stuff, um, where we take the insights that came out of the psychedelic experience, because during the trip, very often people are able to revisit past traumas or see the world from a different lens or, you know, just see things or have a different outlook. And during those integration sessions, the therapist can help you really integrate that into your psyche and turn it into lifestyle change as well. As we know, lifestyle and and eating habits and exercise and all this kind of stuff as well uh, is an important part of one's mental health. So it really is quite a robust experience and and really hits on many different aspects of mental health and well-being to, to lead to these transformative outcomes.
1: What what's the, What's the skill set of the uh, of the therapy uh, the therapy provider? Are we talking about a psychotherapist? Are we talking about a uh, you know a social worker? Are we talking about what kind of what, when they're sitting with a therapist? Give me an idea of the the, the modality or the or perhaps the, the training credentials that each of those uh, therapists, if you will, would have um, in this particular setting.
3: Yeah,
2: it depends uh, jurisdiction by jurisdiction. But by and large, you know, anyone who is qualified to provide psychotherapy uh, is, is someone who's well suited in our eyes uh, to be at least a, a good candidate as a therapist. So in Ontario, we have clinical psychologists with PhDs. We have um People with masters of social work who are qualified social workers because they're also qualified to provide psychotherapy. We have licensed psychotherapists as well. If you go to California or New York, the nomenclature can change a little bit, but the, the standard is still the same, which is if you're qualified to provide psychotherapy as broadly defined, then, then you know, from our perspective, you're you're qualified as a candidate Most of our therapists come with some degree of psychedelic therapy training. So we offer internal training, experiential training, um, but there's uh, at least one institution, the California Institute for Integral Studies that offers a master's in psychedelic therapies uh, and MAPS. Which is a nonprofit organization in the US, uh, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, which is actually the organization leading the phase three clinical trials for MDMA assisted therapy. But the FDA also offers MDMA assisted therapy. There's a Canadian nonprofit called Theracil, uh, which has actually got the government to grant a Section 56 exemption for them to train people on psilocybin-assisted therapy. So there's a number of different uh, training um, providers in Canada and the U.S. that help people with the basic training in psychotherapy become more experienced with hands-on training uh, with psychedelic therapies.
1: Have you uh, been on a trip yourself, brother?
2: I have. I have. You know, I um, I would have considered it disingenuous to start a company, you know, really investing in these therapies uh, without having some hands on knowledge. Uh, so I have experienced ketamine assisted therapy um, and I have also experienced. Other psychedelic assisted therapies generally in jurisdictions where it's legal to do so. Um, But, uh, yeah, I felt it was important personally to know uh, what I was getting involved with. And and when you speak to many people in the psychedelic industry, they strongly, strongly recommend that uh, no one become a therapist until they've had the experiences themselves. Because it really is an ineffable experience. And if you haven't experienced it, it's really hard to comprehend what you're clients maybe going through on a mental or emotional
1: journey. I'm talking to uh, Ronan Levy. He's the executive chairman of Field Trip Health. And um, I hope you recover real quick from this hoarse and uh, scratchy voice. And I will thank get you. you out for that bagel and coffee because I want to learn a lot more about what you're doing. And, uh, and uh, yeah, just a real good guy. So thank you so much for being here tonight, knowing that you weren't feeling great. Uh, I hope, this, uh, hope that you're able to just save more lives, man. I know that that's what you're committed to doing, and that's why you're in business. So uh, thank you, thank to, you. Hats off to you, my brother. Um, thank and, you. Uh, hope hope you feel better real soon. Uh, when we come back from break here, we're going to talk about um, the number of people that have died from opioids um, and that they actually set, looked for care. They went to seek care uh, prior to them dying from the overdose. Uh, we have a recorded uh, segment with myself and um, Alex uh, Pearson on uh, the On Point uh, portion of the Wellness Check and the On Point during the On Point. Uh, uh, segments um, on Thursday evening. So when we come back, we're going to share that with you and uh, hope that uh, it opens your eyes to some stuff here. Yonah Bud, 640 Toronto.
0: You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yonah Bud, only on 640 Toronto.
1: Welcome back to the last segment of our show. You know, half of the people who died from opioids in 2020 actually sought health care in the month before they died. You know, I can tell you stories of patients, many, many stories of someone calling me in the middle of the night or some obscure time saying, you know, I really need help and I want help. And, you know, they're in a part of the country that I can't get to or part of the province I can't get to. Or send any of my staff to try to do an intervention to help. So the first thing I say to them is you got to head over to emerge, tell them that you're, you know, you're going through an opioid, you know, you're, you're having issues with opioids. You're, you're, you need to stop. You want to stop. Could they help you? You know, get some medication to come and get you off of it. Um, you know, seek help from the emergency room is the first place that we send because it's the middle of the night. They got nowhere else to go. Sure enough, they go to eMERGE. They wait six, seven, eight hours withdrawing in the, uh, while well, they're withdrawing, going through, you know, sickness of not having their, their meds, not having their drugs. And, um, and then they get to the, finally get to triage through the emergency room. Uh, they're seen by a doctor. They're, you know, given some fluids if they're dehydrated, uh, perhaps given some benzos, diazepines, like Valium or something for, you know, a couple of days worth, and then sent home. We're not catching them. We're not using this as an opportunity to seek for these people to get the help that they need. These people that we're talking about are those that are suffering from not just you know drug abuse disorder, but people who are using drugs uh, recreationally. I don't know who uses opioids recreationally, but I guess there are some. Um, and they find themselves overdosing uh, because of the the tainted mixed drug supply that we have. So the difficulty that we have right now is trying to put together an understanding of you know, these people 77% increase in opioid related deaths uh, over the same period from 2019 and that that is that is behind like we're, it's not even close um you know people that are be accessing care trying to get to a doctor trying to get to clinics trying to get to methadone centers uh without a prescription like it's it's next to impossible so we're really seeing a lot of barriers to accessing treatment, and those people are ending up dead on the street. I, I did a, I was invited to, to do a wellness check. I do a wellness check every Thursday uh, at 9 p.m. on, on point with um, Alex Pearson. And uh, that's uh, at 9 p.m. on Thursdays. It's called Wellness Check. Please join us there as well. And um, we have—I uh, want to share my discussion, my my visit with Alex this past Thursday, as we talk about this subject and the this, you know the the issues with fentanyl in our system, our drug system, and uh, what we're uh, the suffering that people are going on and, and dealing with as a result of this. Uh, have a listen. We'll be right back here.
6: Earlier this week, a study caught my eye which reported that half of those who died from opiate overdoses in 2020 actually looked for help the month before. They actually went to an emergency and uh, were turned away for whatever reason. But when you look at the issue here, I mean, opiate overdoses have skyrocketed during this pandemic, when you look to the period of March 2020 to December 2020 by 77%. And data that was released before the holidays in 2021 suggests we could start seeing about 2,000 opiate deaths monthly in the coming months. So what this report seems to show is that addicts out there are trying to find help in our healthcare system, only to die because the help's not available. Iona Budd is co-founder and clinical director of The Farm in Stouffville and Recover at Home Addiction and Crisis Therapist. He's also the host of Road to Recovery on 640 Toronto, Saturdays 9 until 11. He joins us now. Good to have you. Nice to be here, Alex. Thank you. So I saw this uh, report come out, and what it seems to tell me is that, you know, there are just too many barriers to help those addicted to drugs. And um, as you know, I mean, when you're in crisis, barriers are a death sentence.
1: Yeah, 100%. I think that uh, it's obvious if you can't get the help you need when you need it, and uh, you're one of the fortunate few that get to the point where you actually have the energy and the strength to ask for the help and then it's turned away mm-hmm. a couple of things happen number 1 you know we see people die and fall off and the other is that people lose interest and faith and respect for the system and uh, they eventually you know also end up in uh, on death row so it's it's a it's a terrible situation and what's what's interesting here is not all of the deaths are quote unquote uh, drug abuse um, are people with a, a drug abuse or substance abuse disorder. Mm-hmm. Some some a lot of some of these deaths. I'm not sure what percentage um, are people who are re- weekend or you know recreational users and end up mm-hmm. in a in a bad situation, end up in a hospital uh, for an overdose and they're sent home. Um, mm-hmm. So you know a, a lot of them are, are just not being treated properly once we get to the door of the help uh, that's available and uh, that's where we're failing people where even when they walk through the door through the lineups and whatever they get to us we're doing not doing a great job of helping them when they get there so where do they go back out into the streets
6: Yeah, and we don't know why someone would go to the hospital or it didn't give us any context to the situation at hand or why they were, you know, turned away. But oftentimes, as you know, an addict will go to the emergency and it seems like, and I'm not putting the blame on on frontline staff because they are absolutely swamped, but they get shuffled around or maybe the needs don't get taken seriously because our system is so strained that we can hardly handle health crises, but we have almost zero supports for actual mental health care um, emergency supports in this country and, and navigating the system it is very, very difficult.
1: Well, especially now, and listen, i nothing against my brothers and sisters in healthcare. They do a great job and, you know, they do the best they can, but I can't tell you how often weekly it's, it's multiple times weekly where I'm on the phone with somebody in a different jurisdiction that we just can't get to and help. And, you know, going through their situation and the, I tell them, you know, first thing you got to do is like go to emerge, tell them you're having a hard time. You want to get off the drugs or alcohol. It happens with alcohol as well. You know, you, you, you have, you need some help. You, you need a, you know, a few meds to get you past the withdrawal and maybe a, a referral to a program. And you know, and 12 hours later, they call me and they say, you know, sent me home gave me some IV and uh, sent me home. So um, it, it's frustrating because it, it has to be emergency rooms, as, as difficult as it is for the operators of them, um, are, are a place where people are going to walk in that are in need and need to be at least directed somewhere where they can get their needs met. And if it's not in an emergency ward, then maybe it's in the Withdrawal Management Center somewhere or in some mm-hmm. form of clinic or, or something. Uh, obviously, it's not in place yet, We which just. Desperately needed. Uh, They need to go somewhere, but they're the they're the net. So if the net is broken, then what happens is they fall through the net, and we end up with lots of deaths. And like you said in the onset, the numbers are going to be soaring. It's going to be out of control in years to come.
6: Yeah, we call it collateral damage. It's, it's, it just desensitizes people. But, you know, we, we always hear about the injection sites, which are the only solution, apparently. But what bothers me is, to your point, you know, if someone's addicted and going active, actively to, to find the help, we just don't have the options to help them in that moment. You know, we don't, have um you know readily available rehabilitation centers to say hey come on come with me we can get your rehab right now you got to get on a waiting list and and, and that, frankly it's expensive so we just don't have a system in place for that because ultimately isn't it kinder yona to get people freed of their addiction i mean we've we seem to have turned this conversation of keeping people imprisoned uh, uh, you know facing almost a certain death and that that's the only treatment
1: yeah, and then switching them from, you know, uh, you know, heroin to methadone or Suboxone, which is an opioid under its uh, opioid, opiate as well. You know, we're switching, you know, there's people, thousands and thousands and thousands of people in this country that line up daily to get their methadone drink and then go back to work. Uh, they're not free of anything. So, but let me ask you something, you know, we had a whole bunch of, mm-hmm. I think you and I had this tent discussion a few weeks ago, yeah. uh, about another subject, you know, so what's a big deal to throw up a tent or two at the back of Sunnybrook or the back of yeah. St. Joe's or the back of, you know, uh, one of the buildings somewhere downtown or an empty building somewhere downtown. What's the big deal to throw up something and get a little help from the military and put together withdrawal management centers, help people get through it. If they can't give them a short term methadone supply, you know, have some, have students come in that are lear- that are desperate to learn to do some clinical work. Uh, that are in social work or in addiction counseling programs or all forms of psychiatric programs and psychology programs, have them come and work the floor, so to speak. And we can help these people for not a whole lot of money. So no one's one's listening.
6: Well, also no one's thinking outside the box. I mean, obviously we don't have a military big enough to keep, you know, trying to do the band aid work of our healthcare system. But we do have certainly students and and there are people we, if we think outside the box, we could come up with, with a solution. I just don't, I don't know. Um, maybe it'll be in the aftermath when we start actually putting names and faces to all of the people who have been damaged in this pandemic uh, response, who have, you know, been ignored because COVID was the priority. One day there's going to be a reckoning, Yona, where people say, like, "What did these lives not matter?" Whether it's the opioid uh, addict or the child who's been destroyed by an eating disorder, or, or, or. I mean, I, I believe we're in for a wall of shame coming in the next couple of years.
1: Yeah, I do too and it's unfortunate because you can see the you can see the wave mm-hmm. coming you can see yeah. the wave coming. I, I mean, you can see it. I can see it. And people are that of the in the know or in this industry or reporting on it, like you do so well. You know, it we're seeing it. You see the wave coming up from the ocean. You know what it's going to do. We're going to all drown in it. And you know, it, we're just not set up for it. We're not going to be in a position to manage it. And it's a much, it's a much more difficult thing than just wearing a mask and getting a few injections and hoping it's going to be okay. This is stuff is so deep. And so, yeah. so you know, uh, entrenched in a person's psyche that year and year, you know, into two years, three years of this kind of pandemic thinking, you know, people who were, quote unquote, in good, had good mental health that, you know, prior to this, many of them yeah. can just no longer hang on. And um, yeah. we, we haven't even seen the tip of the iceberg, unfortunately.
6: No, I mean thank God for guys like you uh, who help uh, open a line to to uh, talk. I I, I get a lot of letters now, Yana. I get a lot of people just emailing me privately, and some of the things are just—it's heartbreaking. It is. Yeah, because you know
1: they're looking. People are looking for answers anywhere they can get them, and uh, or they're just looking for
6: someone to talk to. They're listening. They're looking for someone to understand that they're they're not alone, and it's it's terrible.
1: Well, there you have it. That was my discussion with my good friend uh, Alex Pearson on On Point on Thursday evening. Join us next week as we talk about different things on the Wellness Check. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. I know there was an awful lot to take in. Uh, I hope some of it uh, sunk in where it needed to. We need to make some changes and make some uh, effort to uh, try to uh, do things just perhaps a little bit better. Anyway, you are the greatest audience ever, and I love you. I'm looking forward to seeing you all next week. Remember, hug the people you're with, and do you know where your children are, your loved ones? I should have done this a little earlier, but if you don't know where your children are, your loved ones, your pets, you should probably reach out and try to find them or call 911. If you need to try me during the week, anytime, 877-777-5808, and I'd be glad to chat with you. So until next week, just be good and do something for me, would you? When you see somebody, just smile. See if it makes a difference. We can talk about it next week. Yona Bud. 640 Toronto.